just tell me something. How, how, how do you live without your mother? You do. You learn to. Judith Helfand. Welcome to Exit Strategy. I thank you so much for joining me for this podcast because in so many ways, you, (laughs) you are actually the perfect guest. And it's because of the many issues that we dive into here. I'm really thrilled that you're here. So welcome. Welcome to Exit Strategy. Thank you. I love the title of this podcast. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm entering the exit strategy. I love that. (laughs) Well, at least we're talking about it. And that's important. Let me just do a brief introduction to our listeners. Judith is a multi-award-winning documentary filmmaker, including The Peabody. I must add that. And your works have touched on so many subjects as diverse as global warming, vinyl siding, and grief. It's pretty remarkable, the trajectory there. I do want to mention that you and I crossed paths in 2013 when your mother Florence died after a long illness, and we here at Plaza Jewish Community Chapel had the privilege of serving you and your brothers and, of course, taking care of your mom, Florence. And truly, what a privilege and honor that was. You have directed and produced a film called Love and Stuff. It's a film documenting your mom's death and its aftermath. And so many personal aspects touching on your personal grief, your own, at that time, imminent parenthood, and of course, your connection to your mom through her possessions, her stuff, which we can all relate to. And it's about so much more. I just want to say everything is tangled up and hard to separate, and yet it's so relatable. The film will premiere on PBS on September 5th. I'm somebody who loves stuff, and I want you to talk about what compelled you to embark on this project. My mother very wisely asked me very soon after she was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer, she said, you know, I'm going to be around for a while. I I have some good years ahead of me. I'm sure she didn't say it quite like this, but she probably did. It's like, I've been dying to go through all this stuff with you. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we do it before I'm dead? I mean, it's kind of, and, and maybe if she'd said it that way and she laughed and she chuckled and she said, I, I, honey, it'll be fun. It'll be really fun. But she didn't do it quite like that. There was a timed quality to it. There was a finite quality to the ask and it felt really sad and it felt too much like it was like this turnkey for mm-hmm. her to go. If I go through the stuff, then my mother gets to exit sooner than later. And that, all I could imagine was I'm going to be going through the stuff because my mother 
doesn't want it to be a balagan and doesn't want it to be a mess. And she wants us to know what it is. I was thinking about it in like kind of all the wrong ways. I mean, those are really good reasons, actually. It's yes. not to be a balagan, us to know what's there. So the reason I started this film was because it could have been so much fun if I had done it with my mother when she asked. And I am sure that the specificity of going through stuff and the specificity of storytelling. Now, of course, my mother had really good memory. Mm-hmm. She was in great shape and she was in good spirits. And that's a really good time to go through stuff with somebody. Yes. In fact, it is better to go through stuff with somebody when they're like that than when they can't remember things or when they're in a lot of pain. But I think the last thing to go are the real specifics of stuff of the past, the reasons for things, like the reasoning and the connection and the who and the where and the what and the when, like those things, they're so specific to somebody and they happened in such a specific way that I think it's really easy for stuff to kind of help you get right back to a place in a moment and a time and a smell and a, and a kitchen and a mother or a father or an event that you can then actually translate to your kid or anybody else who cares about you in a way that often doesn't happen when you're just having conversation or when you're busy or when you're doing your life or when the stuff is just being used as part of your everyday life and you don't really think about it. If one was to ask, who gave you that? Or why the egg cup? Mm -hmm. The egg cup. What do you like about this egg cup? Why these egg cups? You know, you might find out something. Why did you keep everything associated with your wedding down to the packing list for your honeymoon? How fabulous. Mom, you saved, I can't believe it. You saved the list, the handwritten, gorgeous, handwritten in script from the 40s, which is a different kind of script than now. Yes. Of every family and every person that you invited to your wedding. And then you saved the cards that they wrote back on to say if they were coming or they were not coming. You know, imagine if we'd actually gone through that, right? This treasure trove from this wedding, and you open it up, and all of a sudden, the first thing maybe out of her mouth would have been, oh, it's the hottest day (laughs) of the year that summer on June 26th. And the air conditioning went out and the lights went out. I said, mommy, did all of these people come? They didn't all come, but I had to invite them, right? Yeah. And then look at these names. Do I know them? Mm, Okay, let's go through them. Now, who knows? Maybe we would have opened up Facebook and I would have tried to find those last names and I would have Facebook messaged, right? Amazing. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That that was my fantasy of what might have happened. But that's not what happened. What happened was I didn't go through the stuff and I would give her a reason every other weekend why I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to because then I would have to deal with the fact that she was going to die soon. And thats I don't think that's how it works. (laughs) I don't either. But what's interesting is you talk about the stuff And it's also the stuff of emotions and the stuff of legacy and the stuff of possessions collected over a lifetime. And here you are thinking about process of sorting through it all. So stuff 
really becomes a metaphor at this point, right? Stuff without the stories of their life is stuff. Stuff that you go through with your loved ones and maybe your siblings or other people who are there to witness becomes a transom. In your apartment, you have those, which people will learn about when they see the film, you have those 50-plus boxes. No, no, no. We have gone through them. You have. We unpack them so that the most important objects would be a part of our life. That is my mother's mother's egg slicer that she used on Pesach. And now we have it on that shelf. But when we need to cut eggs, we cut eggs with it. And she cut eggs with it. And my grandmother cut eggs with it. And so all our hands are now, they're on top of my hand. When I bring it down, everybody's hands are on top of my hands when I cut the egg. You know, there are some remarkable scenes that capture this very dialogue between you and your mom, which are just gems. And you asked her shortly before her death, just the most profound question. Before we move on, I want to pause and I want to play that clip. Just tell me something. How, how, how do you live without your mother? You do. It seemed you were asking not only for yourself, but also for your own daughter, who you would soon adopt. Well, I I was absolutely asking for myself. I really did not expect at that point that that I would get the baby to adopt because I had been matched with another birth mother and a baby, which my mother knew about, but. That moment in time and that process and that birth mother may may she be doing very well Mm -hmm. really got in the way of my being able to care for my mom. And she basically said, you know, you're not probably going to even get that baby. I don't think she's going to give that baby. And if she does, I think your open adoption will be very, very, very painful for you. And it's going to be difficult. Probably not in such nice words. (laughs) (laughs) She ultimately said, I'm still your mother. Even if I can't get out of bed, I am still your mother. And I am telling you, that's not your baby. I know it's not your baby. You want to know who your baby is right now? Your baby is me. And you need to baby me. Mm -hmm. Help me die. And then I want you to be in grief for a while, Mm -hmm. six months. And then throw your hat back in the ring. And then you can adopt the baby. But trust me. When you are in grief and you are responsible for a baby, I mean, on one level, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that you get to focus on this baby. And at the same time, it's really hard to focus on the baby and you are in deep grief and maybe you're not paying the kind of attention you want to for that baby sometimes or your mind is somewhere else. And so that's exactly what happened. I was in the deepest of grief for seven months. And as if clockwork on the 
day before uh, my mother died on the 17th of September, and Theo was born on the 16th of April. And Taka, on the most amazing day for me, because it was the first Seder without our mom. I couldn't imagine how I was going to get through the Seder without her. And I knew I had to. I mean, you have to go through the firsts. The year of firsts are really important and that you think you can't do it. You just think you can't do it. And then you do it. It's interesting because in the movie, your mother admonished you about not accumulating stuff because it just accumulates I felt like she was saying that in terms of, yes, material items, as well as emotional baggage, too. Was that the connection there? Because of the kinds of stuff I value. I mean, at the time that my mother said that, they were moving out of the house that I had grown up in and that Mm. they had lived in for 42 years. I mean... It's a lot more space than any apartment I'm ever going to live in in New York City. So, you know, and it had an attic and it was totally filled. It was a, the attic was the length of a house and it filled. But, you know, 42 years of our lives as a family and the things that they had taken from their parents' houses and their parents' lives. So there was a lot of stuff and they were downsizing. I was filming things that you can't pack. I was filming the sound of the oil burner when you mm. close the door. Or I wanted to record and film the sound of the door jingling when my mother came home and her saying, I'm home. And you know, you can't pack that. I mean, you could remember that. I mean, I made a film about this very thing. It's a short, it's called Ekvelt at the end of the world. And it's when my parents moved from Merrick, Long Island to all the way, all the way, all the way out east to a part of eastern Long Island that really did not have a train station nearby. It was just the most inconvenient place. I was filming, you know, that, the sound of the door, and I was, I was, I was filming the sound of the last roast chicken and the sound of the last Hanukkah and all of these lasts, which I knew I would never hear again in quite the same way with the room tone of 373 Bayview Avenue or the sound of the cicadas at night. For You know, you can't pack that in a box. My mother was watching me do this, thinking, you are just, you're crazy. You're too romantic. You're too nostalgic. You're an emotional hoarder. Like, what are you doing? And you're making all of this more horribly difficult for me. You're taking up too much space and time to do this. Just put it in a box. In 2020... There was a thought piece in the Daily Beast, and you wrote in part about the value of, by the book, Jewish ritual surrounding death, as well as what I guess I'll call customized Jewish ritual. What did that look like for you? What worked for you in the most profound way? I'm so grateful that we have these rituals, and I'm so grateful that we have the roadmap even if you've never looked for the map before, the rituals are just so brilliant because even if you don't believe in any of them and you were going to customize it, chances are you would customize it in the way that it was originally offered to you and planned. It's so smart and it makes so much sense and it's so loving. 
I have made some amazing customized Jewish rituals to make my life work and to honor life cycle when my life cycle was being completely sideswiped and brutalized. And I'm, I'm talking about when I had cancer and had to have a radical hysterectomy when I was 25 because of um, DES exposure. Mm-hmm. I did my own kind of sitting shiva for the unborn children that I was not going to have, which drove my mother insane. I could not talk about it in front of her. I, I drew, drew pictures of them. I was drawing pictures. And like anything that I did to sort of like bury, mourn, grieve these children that I had never met and these reproductive organs that I had just had to have yanked out of me, it made my mother feel so sad that she just sort of couldn't tolerate it. It was the only thing that I could think of to try to explain to her the level of grief I was feeling and why I needed it. And she looked at me like, wait a second. I was like, this is the collateral. I can't do any of these things that are, everything else seems woo woo and crazy to my mom. So I'm going to, I'm not going to explain it to her like that because it just makes her feel more guilty because she was prescribed the drug. Right. Right. But maybe if I explain it to her in terms that my mother not only gets, but she has done in her life, she will understand. So I remember saying to her, mommy, how long do you get for Shiva? I mean, this is all on tape. Seven days. Oh, you don't get 11 months? Oh, 11 months. Well, that's different. That's the year. Shiva is seven days. But yeah, after that, then it's Shloshim. Then you get an 11 months. And then my mother gives me this look. And she says to my father, 11 months. Do you remember? My mother did that. Do you remember? And I say, what did your mother do? And then the Brooklyn accent comes out. She says, oh, for 11 months, she didn't go to parties. She didn't listen to the radio. The house was like a morgue. You're not going to do that, Judy, are you? You're not going to do that. And she gives me this look. I say, mom, I need to do that because it's the only way for me to understand what I'm missing and what my life might have been like so then I could like make peace with what my life will be like. And I, I have to go through this grieving process, even though I didn't have these children, even though they don't exist, like the fantasy existed and the soul of that fantasy existed. And I have to mourn for these souls. So that And the loss. And the loss. And then my mother looks at me for like, it feels like an hour. Okay. It was probably a minute. And then she just says, so, uh, how long are you going to mourn? And you customized the ritual. I customized the ritual. For Shiva, I mean, maybe we customize it. I wouldn't want to switch having people come to my house and sit in my house and say yes. prayers and help me say Kaddish and be my 10 people and give me a chance. You know, maybe I didn't get to say everything that I wanted to say at the funeral, right? If you're lucky enough or you have the words or the courage to get up to speak. And if you didn't, then you get the chance to actually do the eulogy that you couldn't do because you didn't have the words. It's an extraordinary thing. And I feel like it's the greatest gift that we're given that you don't even have to customize it. Like it's built in that each month you get to stand a little taller. You get to walk a little higher. You get to rejoin the world a little more if you do it. And then by the end, you're the expert and you could tell somebody who just had somebody who died. And that's the benefit of going to college. Exactly. That you could tell somebody, yes, I know you can't imagine living without your mother, but my mother said you do and you learn to. And I couldn't ever imagine that it was true, but you do. You learn to. 
as a filmmaker, what is it like to be a principal in a film you're making and in maintaining that authenticity and rawness of emotion that you displayed honestly? How does that work for you? I have brought a crew into my life at the most painful, seemingly intimate and private, but yet I know deep down that it's really part of the public record moments of my life that are as personal as I actually deep down know that they are really universal. I am probably afraid of A, going through it totally by myself and feeling really isolated and not wanting that. I hate the idea that something that is both so uniquely personal and yet so universal that it just goes up in smoke, so to speak, and that you can't see it mm. and you can't offer it. Writers can do that beautifully. They can experience something and then they'll write it and they'll reconjure it up beautifully. And I mean, I, I'm okay with words. I could do that too, to some extent, but I'm definitely a filmmaker of sorts because of the communal nature of making a film. You get to experience the commune and the community the hovering and the hugging and the huddle and the thinking out loud together and the brainstorm and the problem solving and all of the things that really are part of what makes a community work. So being a principal was fairly natural in this film for you? Well, I've made many other films where I've done that. I I often work with some of the same people over and over and they really are part of my family of choice. It feels authentic. I'm not acting. I'm not playing for the camera. I'm going through the stuff when I'm going through the stuff. I know I'm going through the stuff and there's a camera there. But the moment I'm engaged, it falls away. But I couldn't bring myself to necessarily do that during Shiva because I never want other people to feel like a pawn in my play. Well, Judith, there is so much to discuss. There are so many multiple layers of your experience. And this film, Love and Stuff, touches so many layers of people who will view it. I know for me, it certainly did. And my hope is that we have touched on some of the major themes and perhaps we've advanced this conversation about how self-awareness perhaps can and must be a part of our process of grief. I think that's so important because ultimately that allows us to grow. Like you just said, once you've gone through the process, you can then be there for others and guide them as they go through it. I just really want to thank you for Plaza being there. It is a gorgeous, brilliant, generous, loving, loving, loving place. I just have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're offering the community. Some of us don't understand exactly how it works. It's like with Shiva, you don't know why it's there until you need it. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I think we don't know why Plaza is there until we need it or until we have the opportunity to give and be a part of it. And then we understand. Well, hopefully the podcast will help people understand a little bit more. But please know it's a privilege to do the work that we do and to provide the service that we provide. And it's really the community that comes together to make that happen, for sure. Thank you. The movie is 
Love and Stuff on PBS on September 5th. And you can visit our show notes for more information, including a preview clip. I really thank everybody for listening. Judith, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us, your artistic eye, and your stuff. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.